addition to other faux pas this week. And uh, <laughs> I just realized last night, I jumped over a section of the harmony and wrote a sermon for next week. So you're getting next week's sermon this week, and next week you're going to get this week's sermon. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it, it, I just lost my place with this head cold. There's some other circumstances that were unexpected, so we'll just take one step back next week and pick up that passage. I'm sorry about that. But um, this morning we are in, um, if you've got your harmony, it's sections 93 and 94. This is... Um, the Jesus, Jesus and the guys crossing the Sea of Galilee in the storm and also the demoniac. So th that's where we're at this morning. William Gurnall said, It is the image of God reflected in you that so enrages hell. It is that at which the demons hurl their mightiest weapons. It's the image of God in you. Not just every lost person, every, every human being bears the image of God. But when you come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and that image is amplified. It's radiant. It shines in the spirit realm. And, and, and so it's, you, you draw, you, you bring out in the, in the evil realm, in the demonic realm, uh, just an anger that wants to attack us because we've aligned, aligned ourselves with Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever stopped to wonder or consider why? Like, think about it. every story you've ever loved from the time you were a child. Why does every story have a villain? Because we do. We have a villain. He's the enemy of God. He's the enemy of you and me. He's determined to hinder, harm, and ruin and destroy God's image bearers. He hates us. The story of the mere existence of humanity is a story of our warfare. It's a brutal assault on our hearts by the one who knows what God has called us to be, and he fears it. He fears it. I'm speaking of our enemy, Lucifer, Satan, the deceiver, the devil. He has many names. We live in a world that's at war. I don't, I don't know that we remember that as often as we should. If you're born again, you are enlisted in the army of God, and Christ Jesus is your captain. He has called you to fight and to engage in the battle. And if you do not understand these truths, then the Bible will not make sense to you. Much of life will not make sense to you. We're in a war. Sadly, many Christians don't live this way. God is often referred to as you know, we talk about the Lord Almighty, but many people don't know that phrase is given to us in English versions of Scripture because the phrase Lord of hosts doesn't mean anything to us. Uh, the Hebrew of Lord of hosts is the God of angel armies, the God of the, of the armies who fights for his people. We serve and live under the reign of a God who is at war. And I much prefer that rending of the text. He's at war. So to show you what I mean, here's an illustration. Compare these phrases. Ready? Here's, here's one. Phrase number one. Joe is a good man who is nice. Joe is a Navy SEAL. Changes the way you think about Joe, doesn't it? Joe can be a Navy SEAL and still be a good, a good man who is nice. But if you know that Joe's dangerous, that's a different thing, right? It changes the way you think about Joe and what he's up to. Most of the church doesn't even think we're at war or that we're supposed to fight, and that Satan's delighted to hear that most of us are asleep when it comes to this. 
And when you think about the children's song uh, in, in Sunday schools, bandied about uh, in, in many churches even today, I may never march in the infantry, shoot the, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's arm. Doing what? You're not doing anything. Are you the cook? Like, who are you? I don't ride in the infantry. I don't march. I don't ride. I don't shoot. I don't fly. What are you doing? Really, there's no battle. There's no war. There's no enemy. And your life is not at stake. And are you not really? I mean, like, that's that's the, you know, you, you sing that kid's song. It's like, ah, oh, are we not? We're desperately needed. You are desperately needed at this moment in history. You're in the Lord's army. And so, we need to be shooting back. We need to be on, on the offensive. We, we got to break through this religious fog if we're going to come into the life that Christ has for us and the role that he's called us to in bringing freedom to others. It turns out we do have a real enemy and we are in the Lord's army and there's a battle raging all around us. So let us not be too quick to label every abnormal scenario as a psychological disorder and not think that Satan is still alive and well and work in the world. Yes, people have psychological disorders. Or some people have demons. Okay? Well, let's not forget. Uh, th that way of thinking keeps some people trapped, being so inwardly focused, instead of looking at the outward to the reality of God that we can't see, taste, smell, touch, or hear. Satan is real too. And his demons are real. And they're really, really, they hate Christians because we've been born again. So thank God, literally, thank God, he's given us his word so that we can know our enemy and know how to combat him and deal with him. And so you're going to see some of that in the text this morning, the text, that, not the text that I jumped over, but the text that I'm preaching. So let's take a look. In section 93 of the Harmony of the Gospels, it's the departure across the sea and the calming of the storm, um, Matthew uh, 1353 says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And then and you go back to the chronology is a little off of Matthew. Matthew 8, 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him and gave orders to go over to the other side. Other side of what? Sea of Galilee. Okay. And then Matthew 8, 23 to 27 says, and when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him and said, save us, the Lord, we're perishing. And he said, why are you afraid? Oh, you have a little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Here's Mark's telling. Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were, were, with, were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, don't you even care that we're perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who, Who's this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. It's freaking them out. Here's Luke. 
Luke's account, Luke 8, 22 to 25, one day he got in the boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger and they went and woke him and said, master, master, we're perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Now, when you consider the day that Jesus had had, go back and read, and all the telling of the parables and all the, all the things that happened, there's no reason, no, I mean, no wonder that he slept so soundly in the boat. The ceasing of the wind and the calming of the water is a double miracle. I say this because it was and is normally the case on the Sea of Galilee that even after the wind has abated, even after the wind has died down, um, the water will remain rough for a little while longer. It takes the water longer to get calm. And, and it's, it's known to be a treacherous body of water and very unforgiving, but not this time. This time, the very God who created the wind and the waves was speaking to them to hush and be still. And the guys are saying, don't you even care, Jesus? Have you ever had a moment like that? Yeah, I have. Don't you even care right now? He's like, yes, I haven't stopped caring for you. How many of us have uttered some version of that question to God? Less, less question and more accusation, really. And when you think about it, um, when our circumstances overwhelm us, do we stop and find our security in Him? Or, as has been the case with me many times, do we become frantic and start lashing out at other people in our insecurity? That's a true litmus test for how much we really put our faith in the Lord in hard moments. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. He just said words. There were no incantations. That would have been occultic. He just spoke. He's the one who created the wind and the waves. He invented water. There was no conversation about calming down. Okay, see you, Galilee. I'm going to count to 10. He just spoke the command and it stopped. And that's the power of Jesus reflected in his supremacy over nature itself. Now, if only saved people responded as quickly and completely. Well, well that was autobiographical. If you felt your toe stepped on, I stepped on it, but you Jesus stepped on mine, so we're good. Where, where is your faith, he says. Where is your faith? Do you remember what Hebrews 11 says about faith? That great chapter, that whole chapter 11 is all about this hall of fame of the faithful. But the, it starts with this. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And it's the conviction, like that deep conviction we get in our, of, of things that we can't see. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made, was not, not made out of things that are visible. There was nothing and God spoke and there was something. See, God, God's got you, bro. Wait, let me do it again. Oh, God's got you, bro. He knows, he knows the moment of your conception, Psalm 139, 
And he knows the moment of your demise. He knows every moment of your life in between your conception and your demise. And he's there. He's present. If he's called you to go, and he has, by the way, if he's called you to go, then go and walk in faith. He'll use you for his kingdom purposes, though you may be dismayed from time to time, and you may not always understand his will or his ways, but he's going to be with you. He promised that. There's a promise. And in this circumstance, the disciples could have reasonably deduced this truth. Jesus had told them where they were going, and and they could have reasonably deduced that this was uh, missional and gospel-related, but all they could fixate in that moment, uh, their minds on was the, the immediacy of their circumstances. There's a, there's a lesson here for us, I think. Um, even when were it not related to evangelism and taking the gospel and the mission of God, they, they, they at least knew Jesus was with them in the boat, right? So a reasonable deduction would have been, well, we'll get there even though this is freaking us out. That's something we need to take hold of. Okay, I want to point you to 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 12 to 24. So it's a good little chunk, but, but uh, it's almost as if Paul were speaking to the same boat of people at that moment, and the Holy Spirit speaking calm and reason. So listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonians, the church of Thessalonica. It's very similar to this, this situation. He says, um, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And this is, look, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. Here we go. Faint-hearted. People who've worked, they've labored, they haven't seen all the fruit come about. They're just, they're feeling worn out. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. See, Jesus, Jesus could have gotten up in the boat and been like, guys, I'm taking a nap. Cut it out. You know we're going to get there. He, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He loves them. High, we esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge your brothers, admonish the idle. Admonish those who aren't engaging in the work of ministry. Encourage the faint-hearted. That's what he's doing right here. Encourage, help the weak and be patient with them all. See that nobody repays evil for evil, but, but seek always to do good to, to one another and to everyone. Man, and then he says this, rejoice always. Rejoice. Even when crowds of people beat you for preaching the gospel, rejoice. Rejoice. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That Greek word for all means all, by the way. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then he says this. This is this benediction from this, this part of the chapter. And he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He's going to get you where you need to go. And he's going to get you there in one piece. We can, we can rest in that. Do not fix your eyes on what is seen, but focus on what is unseen. Do not fixate on the circumstances, but on the faithfulness of the one who has called you. So we go on, section 94. 
the healing of the garrison demoniacs and the opposition they received. So this is Matthew 8, 28 to 34. Listen to this. When they came to the other side, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now there was a herd of pigs that was feeding some distance from them. And the demons begged him, said, If you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. And he said, Go. And so they went. They went out and into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all of the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Those are not hearts that are receiving the Lord. Listen to Mark. Here's Mark's account. Mark 5, 1 to 20. They came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stopped, stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him uh, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Man, that just, that's overwhelming to me. It's so so desperate, right? Just the desperation in this man. Because he's got some uh, recall. He's got some uh, clarity about who he was before the demon came into him. And, and, and he sees Jesus and he just runs and he falls down. And he says, what, what have, have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus, saying to him, uh, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let, let, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the whole herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and, the, and, to, and in the country. And people came to see what this thing had happened. And, and they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart their region. As he was getting in into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Wow. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everybody marveled. This guy just got, you got saved, and then now he's a missionary. It's awesome. 
Luke 8. I got one more here. Luke 8, 26 to 39. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on the land, he met there a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many uh, a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Oh, there's a fun Bible study. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Then the herdsmen saw what had happened, and they fled and told, told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see this thing that had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, and that all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Does that just not baffle you? Really? really? I'd want that guy to hang around. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. How could he not? How can we not? This area we've come to here in the text is called the region of the Decapolis. Their area consists of 10, which is the prefix deca, right? And, and Gentile cities, polis, Decapolis, right? 10 cities. And one of the giveaways is a herd of pigs. That's how you know this is Gentile territory. Uh, pigs are not kosher animals, and the Jews would have had nothing to do with them, uh, alive or as bacon. Mmm, bacon. Well, let's talk about demons. Try to get your mind off of bacon. Um, this is a topic we've touched on before. Demons are fallen angels. Okay, we've talked about this. When God created the angelic realm, all of them were good, just like everything else he made. But the Bible tells us that when Lucifer rejected God's authority and stated his desire to be like the Most High, he fell and became what he is today. Not wanting to be number two on Team Righteous, he opted to be number one on team evil. And so one, of, one third of the angelic host, that word host in the, in the scripture means army, one third of the angelic armies followed Lucifer in his rebellion and became demons who serve him. And they are these who now have indwelt these two men, hence the term demoniacs, okay? But we need to unpack our terms just a little. These men were possessed. The demons had control of their bodies. Now, I have it in my notes right here, all caps. It was right here that my screen went black last evening as I was finishing this sermon. And when I rebuked it in the name of Jesus, it came back on by itself. No kidding. So even Satan's like, I don't want you to talk about this, bro. 
I don't want the people of God to know that they have, that greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world, right? It was just crazy. It was, I, I checked the power supply. I checked everything. Everything's plugged in. Everything's on. Where'd it go? And I started praying. I said, in the name of Jesus, you get out of here. Give me back my screen. And it was back. And so, okay. All right, I'm going to finish my sermon. That was wild. Okay. But when demons come against you and attack you, that's, that's called oppression, when it's from without. Okay? They lie. They come. They try to oppress you. But when demon, a demon or demons inhabit a person and take, can take control of their bodies, that's not oppression. That's called possession because it's from within. The, the Greek word is demonizomai. It means uh, to be inhabited by a demon uh, ha- that has varying levels of control over your person. Um, now, now, so understand, like, you're a person who has a, a physical body, and someday these bodies are going to be glorified if you put your faith in Christ. But just like a computer, there's hardware and there's software, okay? Follow me. There's, there's the, you, you have a physical computer. I have a laptop, or I have my iPad, and there's, but it's running software, and the software is immaterial. You can't touch it. You can't put it in a glass. You can't, it's immaterial. If you, when, what all the hackers do is they find a way to separate the connectivity between the software and the hardware so they can get in there and put their own software in and do what they want to do. And that's really a great analogy for what it means to be demonized. You start separating the connection between your physical reality and your spiritual reality, you're inviting other entities to step into that gap and wield varying levels of control and influence. You do that with drugs, all kinds of, like any kind of uh, drugs, uh, illicit drugs will, will open up a gap that the demonic can enter in to your life. Um, and so we, we've got we to be really aware of this. Um, people who, who are on drugs altering their state of consciousness, they're, they're creating an entryway for the demonic to come into their lives. You're basically inviting demons to come take over varying degrees of control and even your, your physical body and your mental health. And so uh, these men, these men were possessed fully, and we learn from the text that there were at least two demonized men. But both Mark and Luke choose to focus on the one who's the leader, the one Jesus confronted, uh, and the demons in him. But this is not something that we want to dabble with, right? You want to dabble with this? The occult is real, Satan is real, demons are real, and they hate us. They hate us because we we've already chosen sides. We belong to the Lord Jesus. But note that these demons identify Jesus accurately. Of course they do. Of course they do. He was presiding over them when they sang and shouted for joy as he created the world. This is Job 38, 4 through 7. Where were you? This is, remember, this is God speaking to Job rhetorically like, bro, come on. Right? He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were his bases sunk and who laid his cornerstone when, listen to this, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God, God created the angelic realm and then he created the heavens and the earth and he's creating the earth. They're watching. They're wow. And they're shouting for joy at what they see God doing as he's, as he's creating this world. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's incredible. That's incredible. Of course they know who Jesus is. They were there. And they asked, 
this question of Jesus. Have you come to torment us before our time? That tells us that they know their outcome. They know their destiny. They know the end game. They know that they're going to experience eternal torment in the lake of fire. And they're determined to take as many images of God as they can with them. Images of God, imago dei, every human being bears the image of God. They're determined to take as many souls to hell. And then the hells, by the way, we talk about going to hell. That's just the county lockup, folks. Lake of fire is a federal pen. And after your arraignment before God, you go to the federal pen. You go to the lake of fire forever. So that's why we evangelize. That's why we share the gospel. Now, just for laughs, I'll share this with you. Uh, uh, one website I was looking at uh, as I was doing research this week uh, took this passage on these pigs as allegorical. Can't possibly be literal. Can't possibly. Would you like to know their reasoning? Why, why the snooty website said it can't possibly be literal? Because they are a group that's committed to the ethical and humane treatment of all animals. And so they begin their, presupp their, their presuppositions cannot possibly allow for Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, to have sent pigs to their deaths. Their figment in their, their, their precious little bearded lady Jesus could never do anything like that. And so, so, they, so they change the text. They, they change it. They read it into the text to make it line up with their predetermined ideas and concepts. And we laugh at that, but we got to be careful. We can fall into the same trap, right? Uh, the, the drowning of these pigs has caused a great deal of discussion amongst Bible students. For as a friend of mine once observed, that's a lot of pork chops. It's a lot of barbecue. Like, did you have to kill them all? I mean, come on. We're going to get out of barbecue. Uh, had our Lord achieved such a miracle in our day and culture, he would have been in deep trouble. Think about it. First of all, the Environmental Protection Agency would have been investigating the pollution of Lake Galilee with all the decaying pigs in the water. The ASPCA would have been up in arms over such cruelty to animals. The Livestock Association and consumer groups would have been distressed over the sudden decrease of the pig population and the result on pork prices. And it's really, it's really just too funny because when you, when you really look at the text, you find something that people overlook. Our Lord did not command the demons to... In, to enter the pigs and bring about their destruction. He simply permitted it. There was no command. They asked, send, send us into the pigs. He's like, go, right? They asked. The demons caused the pigs to run down to the sea and be drowned so that they could be released from the pigs to go back roaming, trying to find people to inhabit, right? But let's talk about the demoniac himself for just a moment. Although the manifestation of demonization, the demons in him, it varies widely. Uh, this man evidenced several of the classic symptoms, and I just want to list six of these really quickly. Um, severe personality change. He was an incredibly different person under demonic influence as he was from when he was in his right mind after Jesus cast them out. You see, like night and day. Uh, Antisocial behavior, living in the solitude of the tombs, away from civilization. Um, he had great spiritual insight. Where did he get that? from the demons. Immediately he recognized the Lord Jesus to be the Son of God. This was a Gentile who had lived in the tombs for I don't know how long, but he had never met Jesus personally, never seen a picture because they didn't have any, but he knew him right away, right? Spiritual insight. 
Number four, superhuman, superhuman strength. No one was able to subdue him. He was able to break metal shackles and chains. Uh, torment is, is another one of these uh, symptoms. He was ag- he agonized in constant torment. And number six is a tendency towards self-destruction. This man was continually doing harm to himself, gashing himself, cutting himself. This, these are all taken together. You, you see the picture of, of what it means to be demonized at that level. And once he was set free, Jesus commissions him. That's crazy. He didn't send him to seminary. He didn't, he didn't pull him aside and spend a week doing Bible study. He said, bro, go. Go tell, go declare what God's done for you. If, if you've got a testimony, you're an evangelist. You don't have to understand all the nuances of the Bible. If you've got a testimony of what God has done in your life, if he saved you, you, you can be an evangelist. You can tell other people. And, and so... It reminded me again of just the beauty of indigenous missionaries, those who are part of an existing culture, but then receive the gospel, and now they're tasked with delivering it to their own people group. We, we talk about sending missionaries to other people groups that are not us, but it's, it's, really, it's really interesting to watch the indigenous missions. Um, I was thinking about uh, a, a movie... Um, there's a great example of this in a movie called Small Group, and I'll just put the screen up for you. Uh, my friend Matt Chastain in Georgia uh, directed this film, and it's on Amazon, and you should watch it. It's hilarious. It's really funny. But there's a, there's a scene where they, they go to South America, and they're in this ministry, this place called Ngati, and, um, and the people who started that ministry in South America, were we were together at that church years and years and years ago. But... Um, but it's this idea, right? They're taking the gospel to the people in, in Almalunga and, and all around them in, in the South American country because uh, they're, they're all just lost. I mean, and not just lost like the average American's lost, but like deep in drug culture, deep in uh, gangs, murdering people, voodoo, all this stuff is happening. And they're witnessing to these people and they're loving on these people. And so... Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because the demoniac had access and acceptance uh, to go now that he's been set free where Jesus and the disciples did not have access. You think about that. Because what did they say? In all three accounts, they said, uh, we want you guys to leave. This freaked us out. You killed the pigs. We like pigs. We're not happy about the pigs. Go away. But the guy who was the demoniac, he gets to stay. And he immediately goes and starts telling people about what God had done for him. It's not difficult. It's not very complicated. And the same is true for you and me, wherever God has us this week, this afternoon, today, tomorrow, we can tell people what God has done for us. Now, usually Jesus was forbidding people to go and talk about the miracles he performed, but that's predominantly when he's among his own people, the Jews. So here he's among pagan Gentiles, and he welcomes their spreading of the news of what's just happened. And if that seems strange to you, remember that the Jews had been in possession of God's word for a very long time. And they had a relationship directly with him. These pagans did not have that. They had not had the word of God. They had no missionaries to spread the news. And so Jesus says, go, tell, go. They did, and, and, and now they do have a missionary by God's grace. And hopefully there'll be others, right? And so if you engage on mission for God, you're going to experience opposition and spiritual warfare. You're going to experience it. If that's, if that's the thing that's holding you back, you're like, ah, I just don't know if I want to try to share my faith with people because I just don't, like, no, just, just own it. Just accept it. 
Okay, I, I love I love the heart of um, uh, I love the heart of Isaiah in Isaiah six when he says, "Send me, Lord, send me." Uh, let me let me read you the passage. It's, it's uh, Isaiah six one through eight. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah was a beloved king. He was a good leader. And in the year that he died, Isaiah says, I saw, this is a vision, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, and the thresholds, uh, the, the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. It wasn't even the voice of God. It's the voice of the seraphim. They're crazy, scary, angelic beings, right? And, and the foundation shook and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, woe is me. I mean, he's like in the fetal position. Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and now my eyes have seen the King, the, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Burn the sin right out of you. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Ooh, 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 ooh. You ever beat, were you ever that kid in class in the back of the room? Oh, oh, teacher, teacher, I know. I know the answer. I know. That's what Isaiah's like. Pick me, Lord. Send me. I want to go. Do we have that attitude? Do we have that response? Isaiah's response is he's willing and, and, and his willingness is immediate. And there's no interval of time requested for consideration. I really, I really need to go home and pray about it. Go home and, and think about it. The mission was clear. God called him. He responded in faith immediately. And I'm struck that as I think about all the times in my life since coming to Christ in my early 20s, that I have known clearly the will of God in a given situation and yet balked or delayed or simply disobeyed. Oh, that's embarrassing. Probably you have too. But listen, we can't afford to do that anymore. The time is short and the days are evil. Jesus has not saved us to sit and soak in our seats. He saved us to engage on mission with him, just like the gathering demoniac. He, he saved us to engage and be on mission with him. Jesus affirms this truth all throughout the Gospels and the New Testament epistles. Now, if you're born again, if you're in the room this morning, you're saved, you're born again, this is for you. If you're not born again, if you're still kicking the tires on the Jesus thing, let, let this just pass over you right now. But if you're born again, this is for you. Listen to me. Do not set foot in any Bible-believing, word-teaching church again until you decide you're going to obey because you're putting yourself in danger. You're putting yourself in danger to say, Lord, I love you. You come here and sing and praise the Lord. I love you, Lord. I love your word. I want, I want to obey you until he says, obey me, and then you don't. That's a problem. That's a problem. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that what we say in our worship lines up with, with our willingness to, to obey the Lord. We need to be of one mind, not double-minded. We, we, like, 
God doesn't like double-mindedness, okay? You put yourselves in peril to receive more and more truth if you're not willing to obey the truth you already have. And I don't want to I don't want to see the same faces week after week, sweet saints soaking up the word so that we can go back to our carefully managed lives and resume planning for retirement. That's not the mission. The mission is the gospel to the lost. And even a guy who 15 minutes ago was a demoniac can take the gospel, can share his testimony. I I long to hear war stories of the people of God who stepped out in faith and been overwhelmed by the response of their family, or elated by the salvation of a loved one. See, I I, want to see dirty, ragged lives that have been saved. Newborn baby Christians who don't know Peter from Paul, but know that Jesus has saved them by his grace. That's what I want to see. So I want to hear stories of heartbrokenness over people rejecting the gospel. And by the way, the only way you get stories of heartbrokenness is to share the gospel. Okay? I I, want to see I want to see brokenness overtake our souls as a church so that we would weep over the lost and engage in the mission above all other things. I love being with you on Sundays. This is a bonus. I mean, we're supposed to be together under the word, the teaching of the word, but, but our primary mission is the lost. And we got to make up our minds that we're going to do what Jesus says to do and not just go on playing church. And now's not the time to play church. This is the last hour, saints. This is the last hour. This is the hour of salvation for many if we will engage with the gospel, if we will engage in obedience. So this week, this week, instead of making much of your favorite sports team, try making much of Jesus. Now that's hard for me. My Bulldogs won last night. It, was, it, was, it wasn't pretty. It was too close. We only won by 20-something points. I, I, it was too close. And, I, and I, you know, I, I'm tempted social media, conversations. Hey, you hear about my Bulldogs, my Georgia Bulldogs? I, I, don't, I, don't want that, I don't want that proceeding out of my mouth before, hey, what's Jesus doing in your life this week? Hey, do you know the Lord Jesus? Hey, have you ever heard the gospel presented? I want those things to come out first. And that means I've got to rein in all the other stuff and think critically about this. Keep in mind, many people in our culture are cynical about organized religion. If you meet somebody like that, invite them to church. Just tell them we're not organized at all. Come hang out with us, man. It's going to be great. Talk about your church. Talk about your family. Talk about spiritual things. But make sure you talk about Jesus. Every day you have a new opportunity to pray for God to lead you in a conversation with somebody who needs Jesus. Maybe you're not the one to see them receive Christ, but you can be part of the process. I think of it like chopping down a tree. Nobody goes out with an axe and a a tree that's like this big around and with the first swipe, it's like all the way through, done. It takes lots of chops to get that tree down. And so maybe you're just that first chop. Maybe you're the 20th. We all play a role. And remember that the word is sufficient. The word is powerful. Read it daily. Memorize it. Hide it in your heart. Always be watching and praying for somebody to share with. You know, people can't believe on Jesus if they don't hear the gospel. So find a method that works for you. There are multiple methods that reach different people. There are multiple methods that people are comfortable with. If you you want to know, I can suggest three or four to you personally. So see me, you know, email me, text me. I'd be happy to do that. Um, but never forget that your own testimony is just as powerful. We see that in the demoniac. And, and if you're like me, like I, I'm not one of those stories, one of those dramatic stories of 
the hellion, you know, the, the prodigal child that went and did all these awful things and then came back and was saved. I was the good boy who was in church every week who didn't know Jesus. Your testimony is your testimony, and it's powerful. Let it bear fruit as you share it with others. Last, uh, don't fix your eyes on what is seen. Focus on what is unseen this week. Don't fixate on circumstances, but fixate on the faithfulness of the one who's called you, for he who's called you is faithful. We, we read this verse earlier, but I want it to be your parting thought this morning. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Listen to this. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. It means to make you holy. And, and sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and your soul and your body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Father, we just ask you for that in Jesus' name, that you would uh, continue to wrap your arms around us. You would equip us for what you have for us this week. Whatever that is, we don't know. We can't see the future, but you know, and you're already there. And so, Lord, we, we trust your uh, provision for us as we go forward. We trust that you would work in us and through us and that you would speak through us, even when we stammer, even when we stutter, even when we fall over our own words because we're so nervous about talking to somebody about spiritual things. You would use it. You would use it. We love you, Lord. And we, we seek your, uh, the knowledge of you all through the earth above all things, that men would come to know you. And we pray these things in your matchless name. Amen. Have you ever stopped, consider, stopped to consider why the stories we love have villains? And we know the answer is simple, because our story has a villain. He's the enemy of God. He's your enemy. He's my enemy. And he's determined to hinder, harm, ruin, and destroy God's image bearers. We've, we've got to break through the religious fog of our day. And if we're going to come into the life that Christ has for us and the role he's called us to and bringing freedom to other people. So Jesus hasn't saved us to sit and soak. He saved us to fight. We have a real enemy. And there are people being held captive by sin and death that need to be set free by the gospel of Jesus. Will you go? Will you speak? Will you obey Jesus? Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.